Okay, uh, and welcome to another uh, class. Um, I, was, I was struck today um, as we were uh, back at church for uh, another week and I was looking around uh, our, our ward and we're all hidden in masks and, so, and, and uh, so you can see their eyes and they see you and this is nice and I was actually kind of struck that there was a certain amount of uh, holiness in saying we're going to be in church and we're going to be there and even under less than optimal uh, circumstances. Uh, so again, welcome to another class. Uh, I, I, I'm always thankful for those of you who are here and showing up and, and letting us know where you're coming from and, and, uh, and that's fun. That, that's a lot of fun. This is, throughout this entire pandemic, this has been uh, kind of a labor of love uh, for me to be able to, to do this and to keep me focused. And thank you uh, for, for watching and, and sharing uh, videos of this. That, that, that means a lot. Now, as, as we get started today, um, I really did want to, uh, we're going to back up just a little bit uh, and remind ourselves about a couple of things that were certainly there that we've talked about in this last spring. Um, and sometimes I think we just need these, these little uh, reminders. And that is how we view God and how the ancients viewed God had a large amount to do with how they responded and what they did in their, in their daily life. And so let's just let's, let's put a lot of this thing in, in, in context if, if we can. Uh, for instance, um, if we go back all the way to uh, Plato and, and the Greeks and Hellenizing, they had this interesting little mix of, of the growing philosophy and the ability to look at scientific facts and philosophical view of the world. And yet, at the same time, they had this backdrop of mythology that would lead them a lot of times to view the world a certain way through the idea of angry gods uh, who might strike them down at any given moment. Uh, and so, there's a lot of that's why there's a lot of worship of uh, Artemis and Zeus, and later on uh, Julius Caesar trying to appease these angry gods to make sure that they uh, didn't go afoul of what deity wanted. Now, if we, if we set aside Judaism and Christianity for just a second, when the Apostle Paul is trying to introduce Christianity to that first century world, uh, we, we remember at, when he gets to Mars Hill and, he, and he's taken up onto the Areopolis, and he's kind of on trial, really what could be for his life uh, in, in Acts. Um, he runs into do, two different groups of people who saw themselves and God in a very certain way. Uh, first of all, we had the Epicureans, who kind of viewed God as like this uh, absent landlord. He created the thing and then he left and said basically to mankind, have a good time. Go have fun. Do your thing. Uh, and even now we'll refer to, if you go to a great restaurant, sometimes they'll say, that was an Epicurean delight. Meaning, we had a really good time and the food was fabulous and a good time was had by all. 
Okay, that's the Epicurean way of looking at the world, and certainly in ancient Athens, uh, in 50 A.D., they, they looked at the world that way and figured that God wanted them to to treat the world that way. They were balanced off to a certain extent uh, by uh, the Stoics, for whom uh, God was a pretty logical kind of thing that emotions kind of got in the way of understanding and truth and knowledge. And so you were trying to understand truth, but you had to do it in a, in a non-emotional, intellectual sort of way. And so we're going to, they were the ones that were going to kind of grill Paul a bit on exactly tell us what it is that you were thinking. The Epicureans are saying, you're kind of raining on our party. Uh, tell us what you're doing. But again, for, for all of these uh, Greek and Roman people, they were really backed up by the idea that uh, the way that they viewed God directed what they did on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, and, and they went from there. Now, if we're looking ahead uh, more to how that rolls as the ultimately Christianity is ultimately embraced by Constantine. It's made the state religion. They now roll forward with that understanding. So what is life like and the world like for someone in the Middle Ages? Well, basically what's happened here is that Christ is basically above all things. He was here. Uh, he wrought the atonement. He's now gone. And so really the church is going to administer the sacraments of the atonement, that this is the receptacles of grace that are going to be here. But God is so far distant here uh, that the church and the saints on the other side of the veil will mediate for you. Uh, and so to your, your job to be obedient to God was to be obedient to the church and let Mary and the saints uh, be the intermediaries between you and deity and heaven. Do it right, you make it to heaven, past purgatory, uh, and you get to live in the bosom of Abraham the, and live with God in heaven. Uh, we think it's harps and clouds, uh, but you don't want to go to that fiery place that Dante is telling us about. Stay away from that stuff. Hang close to the church and see deity through our eyes. Now, as we know, over time, uh, the group that began to be upset with that was the Reformation, and they didn't like the fact that the church was dictating who God was and how things would work and how your salvation would be wrought. And so they came up with actually their own version of deity and godhood and man did it have echoes of Plato because in their world man is really bad and at the mercy of a God that's kind of angry at you most of the time because he's the righteous one you're the wicked one and we have to appease God um, and our, obedi our, our, our obedience and being filled with his grace overcomes your wickedness so don't get out of line and don't mess with God uh, but be grateful for whatever little 
spiritual salvation mortal morsels he's going to throw kind of in your direction. Okay. Um, now, so we must be filled with His grace uh, to make to make it to heaven. Uh, so again, go forward and be obedient and don't do bad stuff in order to make it to heaven. So those are kind of the prevailing winds of, uh, uh, and and we could go into so many other areas, uh, obviously of how man has been directed by how he sees God. Now, why does that have uh, salience for us? Well, pretty fascinating that in the middle of all of that, now we get to 1820 and 1830, and here comes unlearned schoolboy Joseph Smith, and, and what's going to happen there in March of 1830, he does a remarkable thing. He brings forth more scripture, and it has a view of God and a view of Jesus that is going to be a bit at odds with prevailing Christianity and then tremendously at odds with prevailing Christianity. And that will actually get him killed. So as we know, uh, we first of all are given in 1830 the God of the Book of Mormon. The, the Jesus that is taught and understood by Lehi and Nephi and Alma and Abinadi. And, and what we're getting is this interesting little mix. On one side, we have, we have a Jesus now who loves all people equally. Not just bond and free, male and female, that Paul talked about, but also... Gentiles and and Jews on both sides of the world, and and this this Jesus was going to love all people equally. Um, now that gave, but again, that gives us a little bit of an interesting rub here coming out of the Book of Mormon. We have the atonement of Jesus Christ and His universal love, but it's also mixed with the Nephites limited understanding of the afterlife. So in the middle of Christ and the atonement, we also have heaven and hell and, uh, and wonderful uh, angels and those kind of things mixed with everlasting burnings and flames that seem to be a little bit at odds with this uh, universally loving Jesus Christ. So it has some of the Old Testamentish uh, rolling into to uh, what it is that, because that was the that was the limit of Nephi's or Jacob's understanding to that point, and Alma in his time basically says, "Hey, I'm guessing on some things. There's some speculation going on with me, and I'm going to guess, and I'm praying, I'm trying to get more light and knowledge, okay, until Jesus actually comes in Third Nephi and stands before them." But this is March of 1830. In, in a remarkable nine months, that will change a lot. More, I think, than I think sometimes as members of the church, we understand just how tremendously it changed. Because sometimes we've missed this. In 1830, we have the Book of Mormon. In the early summer, 
Joseph Smith goes from the Book of Mormon project to starting to translate the Bible. And as he's getting into parts of Genesis, he now starts having some revelatory experiences. And we're going to get um, uh, Moses chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And it's moving the ball quite a bit, even from what we were finding doctrinally in the Book of Mormon. But then, uh, when we get to uh, November and December of 1830, just a mere nine months after the Book of Mormon was translated and the church was organized, Sidney Rigdon has come out of Kirtland to find out who Joseph Smith is. He'd talked to Oliver Cowdery. Uh, and they are now translating uh, and, and describing what Joseph is receiving in November and December. And, and to their astonishment, what they're now getting in chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Moses is the restored vision of Enoch. And this is light years ahead of the Book of Mormon and certainly light years ahead of what traditional Christianity was believing. And, and, and it's like, what, the vision of Enoch? Who is Enoch? In, the, in Genesis, he's got like two lines. You know, he was here and he walked with God and was no more. Who's Enoch? Well, we have to take a second and roll backwards because Enoch got lost during the centuries, but was always sort of there. So when, when they're going to restore this vision of Enoch, they're going to challenge 2,500 years of understanding about God and who he is. So hang with me for just a second while we do a short little history here on, on uh, the Enoch text that we're floating around. Now, the Enoch text, uh, this, the story of Enoch, we actually have three books that have been around uh, for millennia. First Enoch, second Enoch, and the book of the giants. Uh, first Enoch along with second Enoch and, and that last one, the Book of the Giants, was actually not discovered till 1948 in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which continued the Enoch story from First and Second Enoch. Now, the Enoch story, whether, whether, how much of it was true, how much of it was mythological, was well known during the time of Jesus. And we know from a couple of different places, along with the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, that it was well known and understood during the, during the time of Jesus. It was also well known among Jewish mythology. The stories of Enoch are, are contained in the Midrash. The, the, the uh, mythology and the oral stories sometimes of Jewish history. This, this greater story of who Enoch was and what he did and what he saw uh, was always kind of there didn't quite make it into the Septuagint that was uh, written, the, the Hebrew Bible, uh, written around 400 uh, B.C., but it was there. It was, those scrolls were available. Uh, now, like I say, the, the Book of the Giants was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948, and we may talk more about that next week, but this, this Book of the Giants from the Dead Sea Scrolls 
is some of the most compelling evidence that we have of Joseph Smith's prophetic ability. Because Joseph Smith received in Moses 7 things that had not been known and were only found in 1948. Joseph Smith was either a prophet or incredibly lucky. <laughs> one, of, one of the two, okay? So, so these scrolls are available. And then, and part of it is actually quoted in the book of Jude in the New Testament, uh, talking about ten, ten, an army of 10,000 that's going to come forward. That's, very, that's contained in Enoch. Now, the books of Enoch were taught and believed as scripture by many of the, of the early church fathers, including Justin and Tertullian who saw them as uh, part of their Christian canon and taught from them, believed in them. So what happened to them? Well, St. Augustine, uh, about 400 A.D., disagrees with, with all of this, teaches against it, and, because it had things like a premortal existence, and, and Augustine is going to teach against it. And so the book of Enoch will kind of disappear into history, into antiquity. And the Catholic Church and the Reformers are not looking at all at Enoch. By the time it gets to the King James Version, all they have of Enoch is those couple of lines in Genesis. And Enoch disappears, basically. Interestingly enough, though, it reemerges. And that is in 1769, there's an explorer by the name of James Bruce. And in part of his exploring, he goes down into Ethiopia. And wow, not only do they believe in Ethiopia that they have the, the, uh, some remnants of the Temple of Solomon, but they're using this book of Enoch as scripture. And they're, and they're using it a lot. And he finds it everywhere that Enoch is part of their accepted canon in Ethiopia. And he's saying, wow, you know, growing up in Church of England, I didn't know any of this. Um, but, but there it is. Now, why would the book of Enoch be uh, controversial and why is it so important enough that it's going to be restored so much of it in uh, Joseph Smith's incredible vision of Enoch in Moses 6 and 7? Well, the books of Enoch include some things like the idea that the Son of Man was coming, that there was a Messiah coming, the Son of Man, but he had already existed in a pre-mortal life that he had lived previously, as did the sons of men. Because of that, it also frames better an understanding that the Jews believed in multiple gods. Remember, when they come back from Babylon, they are monotheistic. There is only one God, Jehovah, and we don't believe in anybody else. And as they're shaping and writing the Old Testament in Babylon, they're writing it to say, we believe in one God. We're different from the pagans who have all these gods. We only have one God. 
The book of Enoch is saying, no, there was multiple gods, including a Holy Spirit, a Holy Ghost, that acts upon men. And, and, that, that, and that Enoch understood that. Uh, also, that evil came into the world, but it wasn't Adam and Eve's fault. And that's part of, I think, what, what uh, Augustine was pushing back against is, remember the church was really invested in original sin. Uh, sin went back to Adam. Um, it was never taken care of. It takes the atonement to take care of Adam's sin. We have all transgressed because of that. Children need to be baptized because they're born into the world with original sin. And There's on and on and on and on. The book of Enoch says no. Evil came into the world, but you can't lay it at the feet permanently of Adam and Eve. That was a transgression. And they're no longer accountable after their own repentance for that. And again, now you're pushing back against a lot of uh, Christian doctrine. You can see why August, Augustine was not happy with it. And here's the one, and I want to spend the balance of today looking at this one because I think this is the most powerful doctrine of all. If nothing else, as one scholar has put it, if the Book of Mormon is the cornerstone of our religion, then Moses 6 and 7 become our theological foundation underneath that cornerstone because it, it describes fully the full nature of God. And this is a God, as we're going to talk about, who has deep emotion and passions. Remember, in the uh, Westminster Confession, the, the writing down of the liturgy and the beliefs of the Church of England, they were pretty invested in a God without body, parts, or passions. He does not have emotion. He's above all of that. Emotions are a problem. God is not going to be locked into emotional weakness, body parts, or passions. The book of Enoch and... and Moses 6 and 7 says this is a, a, we worship an emotional God who has deep feeling for his children and loves them, but is surprised by their actions, as we'll talk about uh, in a second. Okay, so now let's take a look at uh, why this becomes so, so much of an important uh, idea, I think, and why it is that I think sometimes... Latter-day Saints have not looked as deeply into the book of Moses because we're not sure what to do with it. Um, and, and so the, even the Joseph Smith translation that ultimately ended up in the hands uh, for so long of the uh, reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, now the Church of Christ, we didn't look as closely as we could have at the Joseph Smith translation where so much of this comes from. Now, so let's, so let's now look at the, the vision of Enoch and why it is that I think this should frame our theology more deeply than it does. Okay? So, Moses 7. And after that Zion was taken up into heaven, 
So remember that for hundreds of years, Enoch is going to work with his people. And we'll talk, next week we're going to be talking about uh, Enoch Zion and how that came to happen and what he did with that and how it affected Joseph Smith's on-the-ground decision-making in a huge way in 1831 based on Moses 6 and Zion. But we're going to we're jumping ahead a little bit here too. After that Zion was taken up into heaven, Enoch beheld and lo all the nations of the earth were bef- before him. So we're going to get this vision is going to come after he has been translated. And now has this much more perfect view of the world and of God and how we got Joseph or uh, Enoch's post translation vision is amazing but it comes through the instrumentality of the prophet Joseph Smith now and it says and there came generation upon generation and Enoch was high and lifted up even in the bosom of the father and the son of man and beheld the power of Satan was upon all the face of the earth. Remember, we have this time where they're all being mayhands and they are deeply involved in bloodshed and, and robbing each other and it's becoming more and more wicked and out of control and he, this is just another generation after Enoch uh, that he's watching his I think grandson, I, I might be wrong, grandson Noah having to decide what he's going to do here. Okay, He's lifted up in the bosom of the Father and the Son of Man and behold the power of Satan was upon all the face of the earth and it came to pass that as Enoch is watching that the God of heaven looked upon and this would be the Savior looked upon the residue of the people these are those that weren't caught up uh, in uh, the the city of Enoch the residue of the people and he wept and Enoch bore record of God's tears saying how is it that the heavens weep and shed forth their tears as rain upon the mountains now there's two elements to this that I, that I want to make sure that, that we, cap, we capture both of these. Let me go back to front. Isn't it fascinating that the way that Enoch will frame this is saying as he's watching God's tears and shed forth their tears as rain upon the mountains. Well, what is it that he's watching? He's watching a torrent of rain that won't stop until the world is drowned in floods and killed. And in a sense, the flood becomes a very symbolic way of describing God's tears. That God is weeping so much that the world is drowned in that. That the the floods were as a rain descending upon the mountains and coming down and flooding out the, the world and it's God's tears I think is, is amazing so that's number one 
that we don't always see the flood as a symbolic representation of God's tears. Number two, listen to Enoch's question. He's not saying, uh, he says, how is it that the heavens weep? Enoch is not saying, why are you weeping? He can see the flood. He can see the painful death that that would inflict on so many of God's children. He's not asking why. He's asking what? What What are you doing? And then it will be explained a step farther. And Enoch said unto the Lord, How is it that thou canst weep? Seeing that thou art holy and from all eternity to all eternity. What he's saying, and if we put it in our terminology, you are all powerful and you are all knowing. You knew all of this. How can you be crying knowing that it needed to happen, knowing that you knew that it would happen? You knew exactly kind of what will happen to begin from the beginning, what will happen to these people that drown in the flood. You know what's going to happen. Why? In, in essence, it's a little bit like they would have been asking in the Middle Ages of saying God is all-powerful and all-knowing. He knows everything that's going to happen. He knew that the, uh, he is mindful of the sparrow that will fall. And God is about to say, I know that sparrows fall, but I weep when they do. Because I didn't know that that sparrow would fall. I am all-knowing, but that doesn't mean that I know exactly how this mortality will play out and who will do exactly what. And I can be surprised, and I can be saddened and mourn when they choose contrary to what I hoped that they wouldn't do. That's a different view. And as we're going to talk about it, I think that begins to frame the idea of a God that is vulnerable emotionally to our actions. That's, that's going to be really important. And remember that Enoch is watching all of this. Now, can he weep? Will he weep? All we have to do is take a step backward and now if you start looking in the scriptures you'll see a very emotional passion filled God. And I just threw up a couple of these took me like 10 seconds to go through the topical guide and get these. We could go on and on about all of these. Luke 19 and when he was come near he beheld the city and wept over it. This is on his triumphal entry, brothers and sisters. We picture and we have filmed and we have thought about and we have taught lessons about how, how uh, Jesus is going to make a triumphal entry on a donkey into Jerusalem through that uh, sheep's gate, we think, on the north side. And everybody is even though this is Passover, they're waving, they're waving palm leaves of the Feast of Tabernacles because it's the entry of a king into his, into his city. And they're thrilled that he's here. 
don't miss this, that at least for part of it and maybe all of it, that Jesus is weeping over this city which he will die and be resurrected but just a few decades later will lie in smoking ruins and all of these so many of these people that are waving their their palm fronds maybe crucified themselves they are their kids and there's tremendous tragedy coming and he does what, a, what this God does he weeps Jacob 5 the, the allegory of the olive trees and it came to pass that as the members the, the fruit is going bad and the trees aren't doing well and it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard wept and said unto his servant what could I have done more for my vineyard we're being shown a God that's at a bit of a loss and he's going I keep trying things and they and they and they keep messing up that's not the kind of all-knowing God that we think about that would have known exactly what to do and it would have been a perfect intervention into them and he's going no they have their agency they can choose to do things and I'm going to try and I'm going to present things to them and they may accept my prophets and they may not and I'm going to warn them not to starve the poor and they may do it and they may not and then I weep when they fail to do that this is a vulnerable God 3 Nephi 17 when he's going to come and stand in front of them and, he, and, there, and they arose from the earth and he said unto them blessed are ye because of your faith and now my joy is full it wasn't full yet till he saw their response to him he wasn't saying oh I knew that they would do that all along he's like no I had to watch and you responded and now my joy is full he says and when he had said these words he wept and the multitude bear record that this God of heaven that was standing before them with healing in his wings and wounds in his hands was weeping because of them for joy do you sense his vulnerability and we should also be very much sensing his passion now why does this become so important that we see God this way well let me give you a, a, an important example of why I think this becomes really critical if we go to uh, Alma and, and listen to what's going to happen here behold he says with the people of Helam and here are the waters of Mormon, for thus are they called. And now is your desirous to come into the fold of God and to be his people. He had a group of people, and the verse before talks about how they were repentant 
And because of that, they decided to come into the fold of God. Let, the, let God be their shepherd. He was they were going to be called to be his people. And we know what's coming. In the waters of Mormon, he's going to end up baptizing in mass these people. Now, if you and I, based on culturally what we believe currently about baptism, we're going to say, okay, we need to put together kind of the your qualifications for baptism. And I remember as a missionary and as a bishop, you know, and I'm going to interview people prior to baptism, and we have our baptismal questions, and it's, it's basically, have you repented and you want to be clean and 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 all those kind of things, and it's about cleanliness. Listen to the question that Alma's going to pose to them, and we know this, think about it. If you want to be like God, what requirements are there going to be on you for this? If you want to be in his fold and be called his people, here's the requirements. And are willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light. Oh, well that's interesting. What else? And are willing to mourn with those that mourn. I don't know if we see mourning as a not necessarily a requirement to be the people of God, but the result of being the people of God. The children of God weep and mourn for others. They don't hold grudges. They don't delight in, the, in uh, bad fortune for other people. And certainly... They mourn when they watch people struggle, both because of hardship like death and disease, but also be through their own willfulness and their own sins. God's people mourn like he does. And comfort those that stand in need of comfort. In the Jewish way of saying it, you're in mourning, I'll sit Shiva with you. And we will mourn and comfort together. Then if you're if you're gonna do that, if you're willing to bear, willing to mourn, willing to comfort, as a result of that, then you're going to stand as witnesses of God in all times and all things and in all places that you may be even unto death. You will be known as God's flock because you mourn. You will be, it, it will be obvious to anybody who's watching that you are His because you are doing what he would do in that place. If you've ever watched the movie The Other Side of Heaven and you see uh, Elder John Groberg uh, who is uh, ministering uh, in the islands, remember? And, and we come and, and there's death. What does he do as a 
follower, a believer of Christ, he mourns with a wholehearted mourning. And in that way, I think he's become godlike in the sense of trying to follow Christ's examples. So, what are the realities of eternity that we learn? We begin to learn from Moses six and seven, and there's so much here that that again it will spill over into next week. Here's part of what we learn. The, the, the realities of eternity are this. The more we love, the more we become one with Christ. We learn to love deeply because the more we love, the deeper our joy. Now, but we talk about this is the, the plan of salvation, the plan of happiness, and man is that he might have joy. That sounds pretty happy, doesn't it? Well, one of those realities of eternity that we learn and Enoch learned firsthand and made sure that he wrote it and made sure that Joseph Smith received it was the idea that the more we love, the more deeply we will be hurt by those we love. We're not going to be above the fray. If we love, we will be hurt. The more we love, the more deeply we will hurt for the actions of others. Remember that that this quintessential moment of Enoch watching the Savior weep and all eternity shakes is watching the wickedness of those that would die in the flood. And and by the way, that's important enough that Peter is going to remind us in his book that when, when Jesus goes to the spirit prison, who does he go to visit? Those who have been waiting since when, Peter says, since the times of Noah. That's a long time for the Savior to grieve for these people. But there will be great joy when he arrives and when he organizes the missionary work down into the for these people. The reality of eternity, to be like God, is to hurt like God. To weep like God weeps. Finally, that's the true meaning of being a partaker of God's nature, is our ability to be emotionally vulnerable and to love like God loves and weep and mourn like God mourns. Let me finish with this quote from, uh, from Joseph Smith. As he has received this vision, and, and this, this comes from his writings, Joseph Smith is going to say, let every selfish feeling that we have be not only buried, but annihilated. It's hard to be selfish when we are mourning for someone else. 
and to let love to God and to man predominate and reign triumphant in every mind. And then he says this, that their hearts, all the people that are able to do this, that their hearts may become like unto Enoch's of old. That by doing that, if your heart becomes like Enoch's, so that they may comprehend all things present, past, and future. Our ability ultimately in exaltation to comprehend all things past, present, and future. In a sense, kind of being all-knowing. But that all-knowing means all-hurting, and it means weeping, and it means having to watch without necessarily knowing how the people that you love will exercise their agency. And then you will mourn when they choose the wrong path. That will cause you to weep. Brothers and sisters, the incredible power and knowledge and understanding that is contained in Moses 6 and 7 presents us with a vulnerable, caring, passionate God who may not rescue, you, rescue us from our present pain but there will be great comfort from us when we realize that he weeps alongside us and will seek to comfort us until that pain rolls forward and ceases. I bear you my testimony that there's no sweeter doctrine that I know of than this understanding of the God we worship. And if we understand that, we would love him all the more because he would understand how he loves us enough to weep for us. I bear you my testimony that's this God and our heavenly parents that watch over us. And I bear you that witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.